Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Well, I want to welcome you here this uh, 4th of July weekend. Um, Forgive me, one of the things that's really annoying having a bunch of guest speakers, it's wonderful having them, but their head's always different than mine. It takes me weeks to try to get this thing back in shape again, so. All right, um, we have only one announcement that I have for you before we receive our offering this morning. Uh, There's a new ministry opportunity, it's in your bulletin, it's being entitled Secret Service. This is an easy way for people, meaning you, to get involved uh, in ministry. Um, basically, if you'll sign into this, then we'll contact you when there's a need. It can be as simple as setting up some chairs or some simple issue before or after an event. And it's kind of like an impossible missions deal. You can choose to decline or you can choose to accept where you'll face peril. No, well, you'll be able to join and help out with things. And so you can control this. Now, so far, this has just started off, and we have a number of women that have signed up. We do not have a single man. And I just talked about the men in this church a couple of weeks ago and how great it is that we have such a balance of men. So guys, step up on this one. Um, so that's something that's available. Check that out. It's a great way just to get on the list, be a part of things, meet some people. All right? Only announcement that I have today. We're going to receive this morning's offering. And if by some chance on the holiday weekend you've come in here and you're not a follower of Christ, you're exploring things, we don't expect you to participate in the offering. Um, Jesus actually watched people in what they did in the offering because he knows it said something about their relationship. <laughs> We're not watching, okay? Um, you can choose to not be involved. Uh, for those of us that this is our church home, we have that relationship, it's a time for us to give. It's a worship thing. We'll talk about that some other time in more detail. Just take the pressure off you today, though, if you're exploring things. Now, as part of this today... We're going to dive right actually into a new series um, that's entitled More Than a Song. And um, I I need to have you be a part of this right off the start. And so before we receive the offering, which we'll do in just a moment, don't worry about that, I want to play a song for you. And Jake's whipping out this 20-year-old song. (laughs) This one's 500 years old. (laughs) Okay. Uh, This is not going to be the pattern for the entire series. In fact, this is the oldest song that I know that's still sung in Christianity today in a popular sense. Um, And so we're looking at more contemporary ones. But today it's this one, the importance of songs. If I were to ask you to complete a lyric, if I were to say, oh, say, can you see? Yeah, yeah, we know that one, all right. My country. Yeah, there we go. Um, There's a little more we could go on that, like... um, uh, we will, we will. That was the strongest of the three. <laughs> you a bunch of freaking pagans, you know what I'm tell you. Okay? Um, songs and music are a form of a mnemonic device. In other words, it's a form of, of memorizing things and remembering things. And music has been um, a key thing within the church going way back to the Jewish times as well. 
And there's a rich history of, of music within the church, richer than practically any other belief system out there. And while I would say that the Bible is the primary book, I would say that if we were to have them today, we don't have hymnals per se, but hymnal would be uh, um, another one that's involved. And so the music, how that shaped the church, how we're singing things that we sing here today and we don't even know sometimes um, what we are singing. And so I want to break that down a little bit more for you. So as the offering is being received today, I want to play this for you with the awareness that somewhere before the time is done here today, you will sing this, okay? So Father, bless this offering and bless our time. Amen. Yeah, that's exactly how I want you to sing it, too, all right? <laughs> um, there was a pastor back in the 30s. His name was Michael, and um, he was part of a Baptist church in the South. His church sent him to uh, a multinational trip, culminating in a gathering in, um, in Germany, in Berlin, I think it was particularly, where the World B Baptist Association was gathering. Uh, as he gathered there, um, he became very conscious of the rise of Nazism and the prejudice and darkness that was about that. He also was very intrigued by uh, a German um, former Catholic monk named Martin Luther. And in the midst of all that, it impacted him deeply. Later, the World Baptist Association uh, made a statement um, and a resolution this Congress deplores and condemns as a violation of the law of God, the Heavenly Father, all racial animosity, every form of oppression or unfair discrimination toward the Jews, toward colored people, or toward subject races in any part of the world. And then upon returning home, Michael, to his church in 1934, so caught up with what he was seeing in the world, but also with what he knew of Martin Luther, he changed his name. So Michael changed his name to Martin Luther. So Michael King became Martin Luther King Sr. He also changed the name of his son, who at that time was Michael King Jr. He changed the name of his son to Michael or Martin Luther King Jr. What was it that caught this pastor so deeply that he would literally change his name? Um, what was it that that caught him in this way about this man. You know, many of you, I've just come back from travels, and I, I've traveled a lot in my life over the years, but this particular travel, I was asked more often than not because I was with guides and with drivers, different things at different points, more than I normally would be. I'm usually more solo on things. And every time I'd get there, they'd ask me, you know, where are you from? And I tried to be somewhat correct by our society today and say USA. 
um, because you're not supposed to say American because that's, that's you know, there's, the Americans are supposed to be what? You know, there's North America, Central, South America, you know, and so it's viewed by some areas as an arrogance to call ourselves Americans. But I found them not grasping it very quickly. And very quickly I just said, I'm an American or I'm from America. That they knew. That they understood and recognized. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be an American. No, I'm not going to sing the song. Um, I, I appreciate that. My father uh, was wounded uh, when he fought in the Battle of Okinawa for this country. I've had relatives of mine that have served in the service, and I have a great appreciation, especially upon returning every time I come back. We do have great freedoms here. That's not to ignore the massive issues that we're dealing with as a people. Um, but I'm also aware that in this congregation, we not only have many Americans, the bulk probably, but we also have Canadians. We also have uh, Filipinos. We have those that are from Mexico and Guatemala, from Barbados, from India. We have a variety from Russia, from the Ukraine. We have all of that within this congregation, whether you realize it or not, and more. As proud as I am to be an American, and as much as I appreciate the liberties that I have, what, what pulls us together in this place here is not our national identity, nor is it our ethnic identity. My first and primary identity is that of being a follower of Jesus Christ. That should have been much more widespread. My primary identity, and those of us in this room gathered as the church, is we are not gathered as the American church. We are gathered as the church, and therefore our primary identity before an allegiance, cultural, all those aspects, before nationality, before ethnicity, before class distinction or any type, is that of being a follower of Jesus Christ, to be the church. And so as much as I recognize the other and honor that, this is... This is who we are. Now, Luther was at a time when national identities were high, and a lot of the, the church stuff and the religious stuff was being manipulated um, to advance a national cause of one type or another. Uh, Martin Luther uh, was raised Catholic. He was studying law when one day uh, he's out and about and a storm happens, a lightning strike happens nearby him, he cries out to God that if he will save him from the storm, he'll become a monk. He survives the storm, so he's like, becomes a monk. He pursues it with great fervor, and he's very bright. He gets his doctor of letters, and all the different things are with him. Um, but he struggles in his relationship with God. Uh, Martin is so aware of his weaknesses and his failings and his shortcomings as he encounters in the scripture a holy God who cannot stand sin of any kind. And it's not like he was a sinner of great repute. He wasn't. Um, he, would, he would confess all the time. And so he had a confessor that he'd go and he'd confess all the time. And he confessed so much and on so much mundane things that this confessor said one time, you need to stop this and either go out and really sin or just stop doing this. He says, literal quote, you, you, you confess every time you break wind, Martin. <laughs> Actual quote. At one point in time, someone said to him, Martin, you must love God so much to be this focused, he says, love God, I hate him. I can never please him. I will never be able to approach his throne in any way, no matter what I do. And he was shattered by this. As time went on, and he continues to study and read, he comes across a passage of scripture because in those days, reading the Bible wasn't a big thing, especially amongst the common. 
But even amongst the priesthood, it wasn't. It was as much politics as anything else. In fact, it was so much political in nature that um, the, the church at that time had a thing going on because they wanted to build great grand places that, that there was a concept that came into play, totally unbiblical, that the Pope has a reservoir of grace and he can dispense it to you for a price. So if you've had this sin of murder, um, you pay $10,000 to the church and we'll write out what's called an indulgence and you've been indulged and you're, you're covered. Okay? And they were doing this whole place, and it was, a, it, it, was, it was something that offended uh, Martin and others who knew Scripture enough to know that that's ridiculous. This is not, you know, grace comes from God. So he comes across this passage that says that the righteous shall live by faith alone. <clears throat> and he realizes it's an issue of faith. It's an issue of God's Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us. It, it, it's not by works, but it's by this concept of faith. Radicalizes his world. He's so excited he wants to bring it to the church to transform the church, and the church says No. We got the politics, we got the money, we got the other things happening. No. And so there's a conflict, and they actually tried to kill him in a number of cases. He finally comes out of the church, and he begins to um, speak to this, and people catch on with it. And, and this becomes the third movement of the church from orthodoxy to Catholicism to now what was called Protestantism because these people protested against what was going into play. And it radically changed what was going into play, and it challenged eventually the Catholic Church saints and things there too. Now, this is not a shot at orthodoxy or Catholicism. It's not a thing for Protestantism. It's just a brief history lesson. But in the midst of this, there was such turmoil and struggle, nationalities, ethnicities, everything else involved in this religious thing that was injected in the middle of it, that Luther was seriously persecuted, and those who tried to go this way were seriously persecuted. Some of them were burned at the stake, um, executed in different ways. Uh, they lost jobs. They lost all sorts of things. And so it became a really intense thing, and it's in the midst of that kind of a struggle, that Luther wrote this song you just heard, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Now, songs are something that inspire us. They can teach us. They can instruct us. And a lot of the songs we sing today, frankly, aren't that theologically deep, okay? Some of them we sing, we don't even know why. You sang earlier, let incense arise. And we're like, we're just singing it. We don't know what... It's, it's actually taken from the 141st Psalm where it says, let our praise raise up to you, God, like incense, the burning of incense and that sweet smell as it rises up. Let our praise or our worship rise up as incense to you, O God, and smell sweet to you. That's what that's drawn from. So in this series, I want to take you through a few songs, one very, very old, the other is quite new, and have you understand what is behind them and why these are important in the process. Now, before we're done here today, you're going to sing this song. Before we're done here today, we're going to receive communion. If you're not a follower of Christ, let it pass you by. If you are, just take hold of it and hold it, and we'll take of it together. All right? There's two cups, and the bottom one's the bread, and the top one's the wine, and we'll take of them singly together. Um, just hold those. If you're not a follower of Christ, let it pass you by. We're an open communion. Don't have to be a member of this church, but you do have to be a follower of Christ. So, Having launched into all that, let me walk you through Mighty Fortresses, Our God. Let's begin with the lyrics. There are four verses. The first verse says this, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, hence the title. Now, remember, the 46th Psalm, which this is taken off of, and we'll talk about the 46th Psalm in a minute, the 46th Psalm was sung at a time when, when there were literal fortresses around, okay, when it was written. And the time that... Martin's writing, working off the 46th Psalm, is a time when there were castles right there. They would see these castles. They participated. They knew what these castles were there for. 
And so having a, a, a fortress, talking about it, singing about it, is an important uh, thing. Um, Constantinople, uh, Rome fell like 476 or so. And you think that was the end of the Roman Empire. It wasn't. Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, became um, the, the, the capital for another thousand years in what was called the Byzantine Empire or the Roman Empire continuation until 1453 when the... Um, uh, other forces took it out. For 1,000 years, they built these massive walls. And for 1,000 years, nobody penetrated those walls. It wasn't until 1453 and the advent of gunpowder and cannon that people finally actually breached the walls of Constantinople, now Istanbul. So when he's writing this, he's writing about walls that in a time period in the 1500s that were only just now beginning to have any, uh, any uh, chance of breaking through. The images of these fortresses, and I want to give you a, a few of these real quickly. Let's start with a natural one. This is, this is the entryway into Petra. It's a city that's carved out of rock over in Jordan. And, and you walk down this one-kilometer canyon called the Seek, and it's way high walls. And when I was there, I was there first when I was 15 years old, and I'm like, this is so cool. It's like 10 guys can hold this thing against everybody. You know, I mean, it's just, it, it twists and turns. It's it is the most defensible place. And then as you come through it, you open up into the city and into the valley that's the city. But it is an incredible natural defense. That's just cool. Well, the 15-year-olds, okay? And people somewhat older. So it's, it's cool. So the natural defense, you've got, this other one's a favorite of mine. And this one is Mont Saint-Michel. And it's an abbey, but it's also a fortress. And there's a causeway that links it. And, and this is off the coast of France. And this is another one. It's really cool because when the tide comes, like the tide's out right now. When the tide comes in, it becomes an island. How cool is that? Like the causeway, you can see it a little bit in the distance. It disappears. Imagine someone trying to invade this place when the tide comes in because the tide comes like up to here. So it's a natural offense, just a great place. And then you've got some that are built and constructed. This is Edinburgh, Scotland. And you can see it's right in the middle of the, of the city. Because here's the thing. Fortresses were defensive. They were not offensive. They were the places that people would run to for refuge from marauding groups or attacking armies. They were the safe places, literally. And you see this right in the center of the city. At the end of this is Holyrood Palace and what's called the Royal Mile. Now, if you look at this, you can see the craggy things on the side. Now, this is on the other side of it. If you were to go to the other side, like we just looked at the other side. This is the other side of it. In a little park below, you can see the rocky promontory and, and how strong that fortress is. Now, when I read passages, and it's all through the Scripture about God being our rock, about God being our fortress, particularly the 46th Psalm, but all over the place, this, this somehow impacted me a lot as I was a kid. I just, I, to this day still, I find something fascinating about them. And some of you know that I used to build sandcastles. And you think, oh, that's so cute. No, no. We're not talking these little, these little sandcastles, these wimpy. We're talking massive ones that would go like from here to that over here. I mean, they'd be huge. And they were defensive. I'd build these walls. They'd be this thick. I'd, I'd line them up and polish them off. And they'd be these big walls. And, and then there'd be a gateway, but then there'd be another wall behind that or a, or a tower. And then there'd be something else behind that. If they got through that, then we'd have this over here, this over here. It was an incredibly brilliant thing. It's massively huge, very defensive, very strategic. And, and I'd name them. I'd, this is Carthage, and I'd spell it out in like 12-inch letters or Rome or Tintagel or some great place, you know, of, of fortifications. And they were just so cool. 
And my favorite one of all was my family who lives over in Kona. And, and I was there visiting them one time there. And, and there was this one beach there. And there was this volcanic rock that flowed right into the sand. And a bunch of the sand had come in on the tide and settled into the volcanic rock that was down low. And my favorite one of all time is I, I spent the whole day building this massive castle that was integrated into the volcanic rock. And it was so cool because literally built on rock. And what's really cool is because you have these really barbarians who like to, after you've built a castle and you've walked away, they like to come along and just kick it around. <laughs> Maybe you lined up at the infirmary and you're going, <laughs> fortresses, a place of refuge, a place of safety. One of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why we named this church Rock Point is that we want it to be a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place where people could come in and, and not only find relationship and family, but to find God and understanding in a place of safety. So as he's writing this, a lot of the stuff is in his mind. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. We don't use that word today, but a bulwark is a massive defensive wall. But he's sitting here and saying, this one never fails. Even the massive walls of Constantinople that stood for a thousand years, eventually with the advent of gunpowder, fall. But our God is a mighty fortress. He is a defensive wall that will never, ever fail. Luther goes on and says, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Mortal ills. There's this flood of, of, of mortal or death-dealing blows that, that do come upon us. Some of them can be a sickness like a pandemic. Some of it can be political turmoil. Some of it can be the loss of a job possibly or family or death. These mortal ills, there's this flood, he says. It's like coming on in. And he says, why is this? Because the next stanza says, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us well. Our ancient foe, who's that? Yes, I'm glad you didn't say either the Republican or Democratic Party, <laughs> as some of you are wont to do, okay? He works woe within those parties as he does within all mankind, but our ancient foe is not flesh and blood. It's Satan. He's trying hard to damage and destroy those who continue to love God. It goes on in the verse and says, his craft and his power are great, it's almost the end of the first verse, and it's going to get real dark real fast. As his craft and power are great, and he's armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. This first verse ends on a very dark note. We have this ancient enemy who hates us, and we see this anger and hatred that's out there today, especially increasingly targeting the church. And on earth is not as equal. What are we, we going to do? There's, there's nothing as equal anywhere. Let's go to the first, second verse, though. The second verse says, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. In other words, if we counted on ourselves and our brilliance and our abilities and our organizational strength, we'd pretty much be done. He says, We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing, not a political figure of our choosing um, or a pastor or a priest or anyone else, or it, but, but a man of God's own choosing. And then there's a question asked in the song, Dost ask who that may be. You might be wondering who that might be. And then he says, Christ Jesus, it is he. Then he goes on, 
And this is a very confusing passage. Lord Sabaoth, his name. What? Where's that coming from, Lord Sabaoth? Okay, maybe it has something to do with the Sabbath. No. Sabaoth means Lord of hosts. In other words, is talking about the commander of the armies of God. As one song today um, references it as the angel armies. Lord of the angel armies. And so it's talking about Christ as, as not now sacrifice, but one who is the Lord of hosts or the commander of the armies of God. This language, incidentally, here and, and in this first part of like, who's going to fight the battle, or it goes on and talks about the battle being fought here. This Sabaoth point is referenced several other times in Scripture, but one of the times it's referenced particularly is when David is about to fight Goliath. And he's about to fight Goliath. He says this, You comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of Sabaoth, of the Lord of hosts. So Luther's invoking the same language here, that the battle, like David fought with Goliath, that the battle we're fighting is this ancient enemy who hates us so deeply that depends upon Christ, that this Lord of hosts is going to come and fight on our, on our behalf. It goes on to say, from age to age the same, referencing Jesus Christ the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. The same God who helped out David fighting Goliath, same God who can help you in whatever situation you're addressing and dealing with. Yesterday, it's the same. And that goes on and says, he must win the battle. It's not in our striving. It's not in all our cleverness. It's, it's in recognizing that Christ, there's no possible outcome of this without him. And the line here, he says, he must win the battle, is not saying like, like we hope he does and, and he must win. It's saying he must. In other words, it's declarative that he's going to win the battle. That ends verse 2. Now we go to verse 3, halfway through. Verse 3. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo this. Any of you aware that there's a lot more devils around than there seem to be in the past? This world is getting filled with them. We need to be careful. We do not become that and add to the group. It says, though this world with devils is filled should threaten to undo us or to destroy us. This line then next. We will not fear for God had will, hath willed his truth to triumph through us. There are times that you take a stand in your workplace or in your home or in your situation and there's fear because you know you're going to get shot at. You know you could lose that job. You know that you're going to be pressured or hated for it. Luther dealt with that for real. He dealt with the loss of life, friends that were killed, job loss, everything else. But he says, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. You may be the only truth someone ever hears. You may be the only experience with Christ someone will ever have. And we need to take those stands, hold on to that, knowing that we don't have to fear because God's working through us. And then the next line, the prince of darkness grim, we trouble, tremble not for him. He's grim, he's worse, and he's harsh. But we don't need to tremble. We don't need to fear him. And why not? Now the verse goes on and says, His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. In other words, he has a short-term run, but ultimately and for eternity, Satan loses. And then this line here, His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word. And I believe the word he's referring to there is Jesus. That word, that name alone, sets us up for now for verse 4, the final verse. 
that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abides. So it continues to stand no matter what's come against it. All the things that have tried to, to crush the church, crush the name of Jesus over time has not had a chance. Then it says this, the spirit and the gifts are ours. In other words, the Holy Spirit empowers the church. The spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit are available to us today through him who with us sideth. These things, you're not left alone. Not only is God present, but you're empowered. And then here's where it gets really down to the rubber. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Remember, Luther's living this. He's seeing friends die. He's seeing loss happen. Like goods and kindred. This is a call for us to have an eternal perspective on life, to let go of the worldly ties that we have either to wealth and possessions or even close to us. I've seen people in these recent times who held to a biblical view on an issue only to completely surrender that view, not because they saw something new in Scripture, but because a family member or a friend had a situation circumstanced that they had to choose whether to stand on this principle and possibly lose that friend or take heed over it, that family member, or hold to the things of God, and they surrendered them. Luther's urging us here, let the goods, let the kindred go if necessary, this mortal life also. Don't get caught up in it. Then he says this, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. He's invoking Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. You're hearing that truth is relative. You're hearing it doesn't matter, that it's a social construct. That is not true. Truth is still truth. And it will continue to stand regardless of what our society says. And the final line doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. Now, we're through the song, and you think you're ready to sing it, but you're not. Because we need to look at the scripture that inspired it. Oh, this is going to take another half hour. No, real fast. Stay with me, all right? <laughs> Psalm 46. This is the psalm that inspired Luther to write this. This was his favorite psalm. This is the psalm that he would read and, 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 and even sing. We don't know what tune he used, but he'd sing the psalm out when he got in his darkest moments, and he had a lot of dark moments. So here it goes. This is where it was drawn from. Out of the Bible, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. And I like this next line in here. An ever-present help in trouble. You may feel like you are isolated. You may feel like you are alone. That's a lie. For the follower in Christ, God is not just a refuge. He's ever-present. Ever-present help in trouble. Verse 2, Therefore will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging, and, and our, our climate completely gets haywire or whatever, you know, global warming, whatever you want to put in this. It's basically saying, though, everything deconstructs around us of society. Though the world changed dramatically. Africa, right now, the Great Rift Valley is slowly splitting a portion of Africa. So eventually, Africa's going to end up in two parts. And there's going to be a new ocean there. And that's, that's scary. Not for about a billion more years, guys. So chill, all right? But it's changing. This is saying that, that whatever happens around us, though the world crashes down, we're not going to have to fear because he's ever-present. Interesting, verse 4. There's a, a river whose streams make glad the city of God, 
the holy place where the Most High dwells. This is a weird line because the city of God is Jerusalem, and Jerusalem doesn't have any rivers. It's got a couple of streams, but it's one of the few ancient cities that wasn't built around a river. It's built up in the mountains. Damascus has rivers. Nineveh had rivers. Rome had rivers. Thebes had rivers. Right in the center, it was why they were built there. There is no river there. But here it says, a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the place where the Most High dwells. And here it says, God is within her. She will not fall. Uh, follow this. There's no river, but it's okay. A river is what keeps you subsidized when there's, when there's attackers outside and everything else. But in Jerusalem, it's okay because there may be no river. There's something better than a river. It's God present in the time of need. God is the river, and it talks about that in Revelations. He's the one. And as long as God is with the city or with the church or with the country because they're following the ways of God, if that ever happens, then they need not fear. It says God will help her at break of day. Why break of day? Because that's when the enemy attacks, at dawn. At dawn. So at the break of day, he's going to be there and help. Next section. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. Nations are in uproar. This is, this is the chaos of our time. The Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob, and here's the first part it comes into, is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the shields with fire. Again, the fortress is a defensive position. Those who come in not only find refuge in God's presence, but he also is causing peace. He brings an end to the war because nothing can assail that fortress. And then the last two verses, there's a change. This verse 10, God suddenly begins to speak, and he says, be still and know that I'm God. And we take that to say, be still and know that I'm God. And you can, that's true. But another part he's saying is kind of like, stop it. Just stop it and know that I'm God. Just everything else, nothing else matters, know that I'm God. Be still. And then the last verse, verse 11, is the people speaking now, saying, the Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. That is the 46th thing. And you're thinking, good, that was only five minutes. We're almost done here. We can end early. But there's more. <laughs> because in the 18th chapter, David's still talking, and David talks about this a lot. David's saying, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. At the time he's writing this, he's literally sitting in a cave hiding from King Saul, and he's sitting in this rock. He's encompassed and safe and secure. And so he's imagining this, like being in the presence of God. I'm, I'm completely secure. He's my rock, my fortress. Later, the 18th chapter says, the cords of death entangle me. This is how David was feeling. The cords of the grave coil around me. It's like a snake coming out and calling. In my distress, I call the Lord. If you ever feel like you're, like you're at the point of death where things are cold about you, dragging you down like a chain, wrapping you down and taking you to the depths of the ocean, this is what David says, but he says, I called the Lord. And verse 16 says, he reached down, took hold of me, drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from a powerful enemy from my foes who were too strong for me. Then finally, the 59th Psalm but I will sing of your strength. In the morning, I'll sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you, God. You are my fortress, my God, in whom I rely. In a little bit of time, we're going to sing of him as a fortress. We're going to sing that song that you heard, the one that Martin wrote so long ago, 500 years ago. 
But before we do that, we need to recognize the grace in which we stand. And so I'm going to ask our ushers right now, literally right now, if you just come forward, and I'm going to ask you to begin to pass out communion. And again, if you're a follower of Christ, take hold of it. Just hold it. We'll take of it together. As I said, there's a piece of bread in the bottom and a cup on top. But as they begin to disperse this, normally we'd be saying, and this is something you can do, is we take a point of time to reflect upon um, our, our need of grace, to repent of any sin that we have, to, to contemplate God's awesome gift to us. And that should be part of any communion gathering at any time. We need to recognize that all of us are sinners. Martin really understood that almost too well that to come into darkness and depression until he realized that it's by faith that we're saved and not by our works. So this morning, if you've been struggling in your faith, you need to realize it's by your faith, not by your works. It's a gift of grace given. But in the midst of this, we also know that we, we struggle in this world. We are in a, a world that is darkened by sin. We see the turmoil and the confusion, the hatred, the ugliness, the violence. Some of it has been directed at us personally. We find ourselves separated from family members over trivial issues or sometimes really hugely significant insurmountable issues. In this moment of time, we need to recognize we, we are not wrestling with flesh and blood, that there is an enemy and, and by ourselves, we cannot win that battle. But what Martin knew that maybe we forget sometimes is that God is an ever-present help. That maybe we're like the poor defenseless peasants of, of Martin's time or the, 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 the herdsmen of, of Israel and David's time. We can't defend ourselves. We don't even have the weapons, but... But if we can just get inside that fortress, if we can just get in that place and have the gates closed, we're safe. So this morning, God would have you know that whatever battle you're fighting, whatever implacable situation you find yourself in, that he is still present, whether you feel that or not, that he is ever present, that he is that fortress that he is that rock on which you can stand. Jesus gathered with his disciples on that final night when their whole world was about to fall apart and it, and it would have looked in the short term for several days like everything had come to nothing at his death. They couldn't see past it to what was come next. He took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And this breaking, which seems, seems to, to, to end things, there's actually life that's going to be given. Don't forget. So we take of the bread together. Jesus took the cup. He said, this is my blood shed for you. You're going to see blood shed in the next 24 hours. It's going to be mine. And you're going to think that that's it, that's all over, it's done. But there's going to be a victory in this cup, unlike anything else you'll have ever seen. Don't forget. 
So Lord, this morning as we gather in this place, as your church, as we take hold of a cup, as Christians have done of all nationalities and ethnicities for the last 2,000 years, we recognize that in ourself we cannot stand. But in you, the spirit and the gifts are available. That you are an ever-present help in our darkest times. And, And the disciples, even though they had a day or two of darkness, they had joy They had joy in that morning when they witnessed your resurrection. I pray, God, that you give us the strength to hold out in the fortress that you've established until the relief comes. And we thank you this day for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we take together? Then the scripture says that they sang a hymn before going on out. I don't know, what hymn should we sing? I got an idea. Why don't you stand with us?
So the next time you find yourself in a hot spot in the midst of a battle, remember that he is an ever-present help in the midst of that. That just like David, you don't fight this alone. And in that moment of time, if you have a Bible near you, maybe you pull that out and just read the 46th Psalm. That's what Martin would do. He'd fill up his friend. And things got to be, he says, and, and Philip would be wound up and going crazy. Martin would just say, let's go read the 46th together. And they just read it. And, and maybe you don't have a Bible, then, then maybe you stop and you remember the stanza from the song and you just begin to, to sing that out. Mighty Fortress is our God. And if you're in some place where there's not a Bible and you can't remember the music or the words of the song, then if anything else, look Satan right in the eye and with a cold gaze just say, we will, we will rock you. <laughs> and let that be the end of it. Okay. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your church. I thank you for songs that last hundreds of years and still have meaning yet today. And I pray, God, as we continue in this series with even more contemporary, modern songs, as we take apart these very songs that we sing, sometimes without realizing that the richness of this music would shape our worship in our very lives. We commit these things into your hands, Father. Guide us, I pray, through the remainder of this summer. In the name of Jesus Christ, and the church said, Amen. Amen.